I titled this one, The Sleeping Giant. And I was thinking about how in the years between World War I and World War II, um, Dylan and Danielle, you guys have learned about it more recently, so why don't you teach us a little bit of that history? You want to you wanna stand up here? You want a whiteboard, Danielle, now? After World War I, which was called the Great War at the time, there was almost a, a, a false peace that, that came over the earth. There was, um, there was still tension from, that, from the, that Great War where many nations were involved, but the United States was never really involved. And we had an isolated policy where we just kind of kept our nose clean and we stayed uninvolved and, and we just lived in a time of great economic prosperity. Um, yeah, yeah, the roaring, the roaring uh, 20s bled into the, the Depression era, but then we came out of that in the 30s and the, the very early 40s. And we were disengaged from what was really happening in the world and all the tensions and the conflicts that were taking place. And really what we were, were a sleeping giant. We were a powerful, economically robust, um, intellectually uh, astute nation of many people that was just kind of floundering in prosperity. And then December 7th came about, 1941, a day that will live in infamy, and Japan attacked Pearl Harbor. And at that moment in time, from a historical perspective, a sleeping giant was awakened. And the United States began to shake off its cobwebs and its in its uh, apathy and indifference toward, towards the world. And the, the military machinery began to um, function. The industrial machinery began to build. People became employed. The draft took place. So able-bodied men and women, too, were, were put into service. And the United States entered what we know as World War II. And in relatively short order, at the cost of, of many, many lives, they ran into VJ Day victory in Japan, VE Day victory in Europe, and it changed the whole demeanor of our nation. I was thinking about that as I looked at, at Acts 20 today, because it strikes me that there's another sleeping giant. And as soon as I started working on this, I knew we'd have some sleeping giants today. I, I can, I can uh, predict the future to a degree. It's usually with me, but I started to get inklings of this earlier in the week. We're going to be in Acts 20. And this is the story of Eutychus. Uh, you guys know about Eutychus? Eutychus fell asleep during a sermon and he died. And there's a lesson in that. So I'm going to be watching very closely. Um, some of the people who aren't here today may have fallen asleep during past sermons. And judgment, they arrived. So I, I commend you all for being here. Now, be careful and stay awake. There is coffee downstairs for a reason. If anyone needs to go down, I'll wait. Um, I hope I don't fall asleep during this one. Let's look at what's taking place in the text, and I'll unpack to you where I came up with this, this opening illustration. But I'm in Acts chapter 20, verse 7. It says, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, when it says we, it's Luke is writing in the first person. So Luke was there, the author of Acts. We were gathered together to break bread. Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room, where they were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep, as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Don't be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive, 
and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite to Chios. The next day we touched at Samos, and the day after that to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus, so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. First thing I see there is the gathering. Now, check this out, and this is where I knew we'd run into some trouble. It's not trouble. I hope, I hope that you all take this as an encouragement. I hope that we take it as a reminder and a challenge. And uh, we take it as biblical truth to communicate. It says, on the first day of the week, side note, um, you ever wonder why we meet on Sundays? It is... Sometimes churches call it the Lord's Day. You know, Sunday um, comes from worship of the sun god. It's okay to call it Sunday because there's not really a sun god, but the Jews used to word, the Jews still do worship on Saturday, the Sabbath. Sabbath comes from the, the Hebrew word for seven or seventh in a series. Do you ever know that's what Sabbath meant? Well, it was the seventh day in the series of weeks. They met on the seventh day of a series. Well, then Jesus died and he rose from the dead on the Lord's Day, on Sunday, the first day. And then he appeared to the disciples on the first day, a couple times. So the church began to meet on the first day because it was the day that Christ rose. And you see, when you get to a, a passage like uh, 1 Corinthians, which I didn't write in this one here. Rather than pull it out of my head, if you want the exact passage, I'll give it to you. Um, in 1 Corinthians, Paul is speaking to the church of Corinth and talking about how they should be prepared to bring an offering when they gather on the first day of the week. So it's a normative practice in the early church that they gathered on the first day of the week. You don't have to gather on the first day of the week. We could meet on Tuesday afternoons if you want. You all can get out of school if you want to do that. If you want to talk to your parents, Tuesday at 2 work, you get out right after lunch. Um, for, for those of you working in office setting, um, you have to make other arrangements. But you don't have to meet on Sunday. You can meet any day, but the normative practice just became Sunday. That probably does not a whole lot to mature you in your faith or to reveal the glory of God to you, but it's a, a fact just to... Well, you know, you, find, uh, you know how I always bug you about why don't you meet on Saturday? Uh-huh. Well, now, now, thank you. Now that you know, let's change it to Saturday afternoons. Well, <laughs> so they're meeting on the first day of the week. And they gathered together to break bread. Now this, it's 1 Corinthians 16.2, by the way, the passage where I was talking about when Paul... Um, assumes this common practice, 1 Corinthians 16.2. Well, the church gathered together. It's God's will that his people gather together. Now, I knew when I was working on the sermon, we're going to run into this, and nobody's going to show up, or the majority won't, because this is what we're talking about. But check this out. I think, let me just go beyond that. I have extraordinary confidence that one of the problems we have with the American church is a failure to walk as a church is called to on many levels, many of the ba very basic levels, two of which we're going to see today, one of which is gathering together. Now, it's odd talking to a group like our church because we tend to gather faithfully, especially as a smaller church, with each other. The average American who could call themselves a faithful attender of church goes 27 Sundays a year because what happens is you have your travel Sundays, you have your sick Sundays, you have your family event Sundays, you have the, the one or two I'm really tired Sundays. And little by little, you'll notice a very normative practice of people who would consider themselves faithful attenders show up 27 out of 52 Sundays. 
Now, don't go normal on me here, please. We're, we're not doing that. But if you stop and think about that, in Hebrews, God commands us to, or Paul, God through Paul, you know, do not neglect to, to gather together regularly, right? There is an admonition, a command from God where he calls his people to get together for many purposes. But you'll see all throughout Acts, what the church was always about was gathering, not just once a week for corporate worship, but they gathered throughout the week, not necessarily in mass, but they were gathering together and spending time together regularly. Interestingly, when you look at this, notice they're meeting in the evening. We're gonna, we have the lit candles, the room's getting hot. These people met in the evening because they didn't typically have Sunday off. They were often slaves or servants, and they would work during the day, so they'd gather in the evening hours together because that's when they could all get together, which partially could contribute to why Eutychus fell asleep. He uh, would have been a working kid. They didn't have child labor laws back then. He probably spent a full day working in the field during the house. He was tired. He was fighting, as you'll see in a minute, to stay awake, and he conked out. He was exhausted. So think about these people. It wasn't necessarily, quote, unquote, convenient to gather together. You know, they, they could have come up with a lot of good reasons to go home and, and get to bed, but they gathered together for a variety of reasons, and one of which we see here is fellowship. There's a tricky one here. Fellowship, the church breaking bread. That's what they're talking about, fellowship. You'll see the, the church gathering together for prayer, teaching, and fellowship. Again and again and again throughout Acts, and again and again as Paul writes to the churches, they gather together for prayer, teaching, and fellowship. Fellowship is one of those strange words that's kind of lost its, its meaning, and culturally, it's really been torn apart from us. What, is, what does fellowship mean to you guys when you hear that term? Okay. In seminary, fellowship is just a synonym for hanging out. See, you would have friends over to your house to fellowship. I was, I was, you know, relatively young in my faith. I said, well, why don't you guys just get together and hang out? Like, what are you doing differently than when I have people over to, to watch a game? They'd have people over to fellowship and watch a game. It was just, it's just a synonym for a loose, informal hanging out. And I think that's what we've really taken it to mean is... Well, okay, so we, we should gather together, and we kind of hang out with people sometimes during the week so we could do that fellowship requirement. And then the world looks at us, and they're kind of like, dude, you're just hanging out like we are, but you call it fellowship. John 13, 34 to 35. You guys know what that says? If you don't, I can make it say anything I want unless you have a Bible with you. That's why I encourage you to always have one of those in front of you. John 13, 34 to 35. Jesus says, Love one another as I have loved you. And what's the next part of that? Anybody there? So he's talking to believers. He's saying, believers, love one another as I have loved you. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. Now, how did Jesus love us? Sacrificially and selflessly. Not conveniently, not comfortably, not, not because we had so much to offer. It wasn't like, I mean, apart from me, he didn't really say to anyone, you are so wonderful, I want to be around you. No one, no one paid attention there, did they? It wasn't that, that we were pleasing to God in, in our standing, right? He died for us while we were still sinners. He loved us 
before we loved him. We love him because he first loved us. So he loved us sacrificially and selflessly and calls us to love one another the same, which means if I don't like you, I have to point in the middle. I'm too small. I can't point right at somebody. If I don't like you, I'm still commanded to love you sacrificially and selflessly. Now, when the world looks at the church, and he also says by this, they will know that you are my disciples. Okay? When the world looks at the church, do they see a group of people that is faithful to gather together with one another for praise, teaching, and fellowship where they truly love one another, or do they see something else? I think they see something hideously different. We, we uh, folks, we're all going to struggle with it on different levels. Uh-oh, lights are going out. We all struggle with it on different levels. I experience it uniquely from where I get to sit as a pastor, not just in our church, but in, in things I see across the board outside and other positions I've been in before I even came into, into pastoral ministry. We live in a, in a sleeping giant of a church where no one honestly really loves anybody selflessly or selfishly. We have relationships of convenience. How do I know? Look at the, tradition, the, the, the typical American church and you'll find homogeneous family units. You'll find this is the stage of life I am in, and, and, and I get it. You know, I, I get it on one level. This is the stage of life I'm in, so I will, I will use these people for my benefit and hopefully be of some benefit to them for a period of time. And then I'm going to change my stage of life, so I'll relocate. You'll see it across racial divides, too. We've talked about that. The, 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 there is not a lot of racial diversity in the American church, um, local bodies. But you can go from local body to local body, and you'll find a, an African-American church, a upper-middle-class white church, an uh, Asian-American church. And again, there's nothing, quote-unquote, wrong with desiring to be around people who have similar things to you, but when the world looks at the church so often, they just see a microcosm of society. They do the same type of thing. When I was growing up, my sister, she's here next week, remind me not to talk about her. I remember when she, when she started dating, she was five years old. She met a kid, I'm kidding, she wasn't five. I think she was probably seven. I don't know, she was, he drove, she was older. And uh, I said to her something like, do you love, love so-and-so? She's like, well, I don't know. How do you know if you love someone? And, and I define love, right? Would you step in front of a bus for the person and die in their place? Now, I don't know where I came up with that nonsense, but that was my definition of love. My contention was, if you're not willing to die for someone, you don't really love them. I didn't know Christ at the time. But I think I had a glimpse of what the world called love wasn't love. And, and don't we see that in, in so many relationships today? You know, oh, I don't love you anymore. Well, you, you, can't, you can't fall in and out of love. You love or you don't love. You know, so many, so many marriages fall apart, even in the Christian community, because we have this, this distorted view of love. Love is not a matter of, you know what, you're pleasing to me for this stage of life, and I hope you keep it up, otherwise we're probably going to fall out of love and I've got to discard you. That's not love, folks. That's, self, that's selfishness. Well, the church, guys, we're not called to fall in and out of love with each other. We're called to love one another. And it's not a, oh, you're so wonderful. It's, you know what? On some levels, we're all going to rub each other the wrong way, aren't we? But loving someone is forgiving them, moving it on, and selflessly, selfishly loving them as Christ loved us. So when the world looks at us, 
they see something that's just flat not normal. Because you know everyone wants to be loved. Everyone desperately wants to have relationships where they can count on someone, which will ultimately be fulfilled only in Christ. But we can give them a taste of it. We can give them an, an aroma of it in regenerate souls who truly love one another. One of the reasons we're called to gather together regularly is so we can be mutually encouraging and encouraged to one another. If we fail to gather together regularly, if we easily and whimsically continue to shift, 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 shift for convenience sake, not only is it to our detriment, not only do we not bring glory to God, but the world looks at the church and says, what the heck do I need that for? This early church was a church that gathered together. They prayed together. They loved one another. They, they had true fellowship. In Philippians 3.17 and 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul tells us to follow his example. You know those passages? You ever come across them? He tells us to follow his example in, in how he walks in obedience to God. That's really a remarkable comment to make. I, I think, wow, would I really want to say that to someone? Follow my example. I should. But, but do I really want him to follow my example? Well, Paul did. Look at his example here of how he loved the church and the people of the church. So he's about to go on a long journey. Okay, if you're going on a long trip tomorrow morning, what are you going to be doing tonight? Packing and resting, right? Well, Paul stayed up all night preaching. Why, why didn't he get some rest? Why didn't he just relax? Why didn't he take a break? It's because he wanted to be an encouragement to the church and encouraged by the church. He loved these people selfishly and sacrificially. Little thing here you might not notice is from my, they're, um, they're leaving there, right? Let me catch my unmarked point here. So Eutychus woke up. It says in 13, but going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there. For so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. Do you know why he went by land? So the people could walk with him to the next port of call. He just stayed up all night. He's got to be tired, but he says, no, guys, I love you. I actually have fellowship with you, so I'm going to inconvenience myself for your sake and actually realizing I'm not being all that inconvenienced because it's for my benefit, too, that we love one another as Christ loved us. Do you see that? Could you imagine, like, staying up all night, and then your other folks go on by ship, and you're like, you know what? I'm going to go the hard route. I'm going to walk so some of these people can come with me, and we can have just a little more time together. Look at how Paul lived his life. Look at how he viewed the church. Look at how God used him uh, for his glory in the church. There, were, there was not a sleeping giant at this time. There was a, a giant that was awake called the church, called the bride of Christ. What might happen? What might happen if, if we began to, to wake from our slumber as the American church? I'm not, I'm not being, honestly, I'm not being critical of the American church. I want to be challenging and encouraging for all of us. What I want to say is, what might happen if we went back, way back to the basics? And instead of worrying about how to, how to get an end result, we worried about in the immediacy of it. I struggle with, you know, I'll give you an example with, with my kids, for example. And, and I, you can relate, we've talked about this in the past. My greatest goal in life for my kids is for them to, to have a true love for Christ, to grow in their love for Christ and be used by him mightily. One of my immediate goals for my kids is to develop a, a social network of, of friends for them to have around them, that they could gather together on Sundays. You know, I'd love for them to have a group of, of similar-aged boys 
I very much appreciate your girls, don't get me wrong, but there, there's something unique about having um, same, same age, same gender type kids at that, at that age. We, we've talked about this. Yeah. I desperately crave that. Desperately crave that for my kids. So I sit in this position going, all right, God, why, why do, you know, kid, you may not have noticed this, but there have been lots of kids, uh, male kids my age, have come and gone. Um, and, and I have been disappointed uh, over the years how there's not seemed to be a lot of uh, concern, shall we say, for, you know, well, it's just not really convenient for us anymore, so we're going to go and, you know, well, we don't really, it doesn't matter about your kids. I have to worry about what I have to worry about type of thing. Well, I'm okay with that. But I realize while there's benefit to that, if I'm walking in obedience, God will provide that if they need that. Um, how he provides it, I, I, I don't know, and I, I wait patiently. Um, and all of a sudden, in the back of my head is um, so many verses playing about waiting patiently for the Lord. But my goal shouldn't be to position them in something that I think will work best for them. It has to be to walk in obedience. So what does that mean? It means that I need to love you all selfishly and sacrificially. It means that when I get here on a Sunday... And God has stretched me. Um, you, you take me back four or five years, I would have been, I would have snapped, crumbled, and fallen apart. He's taken me to a point where I don't gather together to try to get a lot of people here to make me feel better, to get more kids, and so my kids love going to church on Sunday. What I want to do is just love you guys selfishly and sacrificially to model that to my kids, to hope that they then, through that love they see their father having for other believers, come to know the love of Christ more fully so they can love likewise. Do you see that? Friends, relatives, associates, and neighbors. I have lots of them I would love to see come to faith. I can't make them come to faith. But what I can do is walk in, in obedience, greater obedience day by day, and trust that God will bless that obedience for my good and his glory and to open the eyes of people to come to know him. See what I'm saying there? What might happen if, if we, and it's, it's so awkward talking to this particular group here because this is one... This is one of the more regular, faithful, sacrificial, loving groups of the church. So what I want you to take is an encouragement on one level. You're doing it, you know. Pat yourself on the back. Know that you bring glory to God. Um, I think we could all acknowledge we could do it better. How could we all love each other um, more faithfully and more fully and more robustly? But let us also be equipped to challenge other people too. Not only in our local body, our local church, but people we know who gather in other assemblies of the importance of walking in the manner God calls us to so that this slumbering giant, let's call it, this, this church that has the power of the Holy Spirit in it might become what it's called to be. Kirsten, you have something? You look like you're just taking a... Press on with this a little bit. Oh, side note. <laughs> Paul gathered with these people. They stayed up all night. You ever notice what the early church did to, to bring people in? There's not a whole lot written in Acts about how they got people in, but there seems to be a whole lot of trouble about how to get them out at the end of the day. You ever think about that? Yeah, we, we as the American church, we work so hard just to try to get people in the door. The problem with the early church wasn't getting them in the door. It's like, could you all, can you go home? Like, I, come on, I got to get up in the morning. Can you go home? What's the difference? We talked a little bit last night. I, I think it has to do with, with the, the Holy Spirit. The fact that it was a church that walked in obedience to God for the glory of God and saw the power of God manifest through them. I'm just, I'm just hypothesizing that if we continue to walk in greater obedience across the board and we, we allow God to work um, 
through us more fully, we might start to see these, these crazy things happen um, where we're not concerned for results, we're just rejoicing in the obedience. I rolled into this two points here, but the second point was the sleeping. So we have this Eutychus guy. Eutychus was almost certainly between 8 and 14 years old. I just make that up for the context. Let's press on before you ask a question. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. The word used for young man, Neanus, it's a uh, Greek word which denotes typically an age range between 8 and 14. It is completely irrelevant to the context how old he is specifically. But assuming he's somewhere between 8 and 14, this isn't an old, mature kid like Dylan we have there. This is, this is a young whippersnapper, more like me. We have a, a kid who's, who's tired. He's been up. He's sitting by a window. Windows weren't like regular windows. They went from floor almost to ceiling. They were used to let air in. And they weren't glass pane for um, one reason being that it was a little bit expensive to put glass in your window. So envision about a 10, 12-year-old kid sitting with his feet dangling out of the window trying to get some air because there are these oil candles burning and the room is packed and it's hot and it's stuffed and he's worked all day and he's tired. And since he's falling asleep, and it was, it was the tenses of the verb show us, he was fighting it. He didn't want to fall asleep. He's trying to stay awake. You know, you, you know those, it never happens at church on Sunday, right? But those other times when, when your head's nodding and your eyes are like, oh, and you're, you ever have those dreams when you're still awake? It happens to me every night. I'm reading a book, and I'm like reading and dreaming, and the two stories mesh together. I'm like, I have to go to sleep now. Well, Eurychus is sitting there, head bobbing, eyes bouncing. He is, oh, oh, and boom, and he fell asleep, literally fell asleep. And he died. He fell out the window, hit the ground. And you would expect that Paul would have been like, whoa! You know, and everything stops, and the people are in panic, and they're crying, and they're just, oh, you just died, you just died, why did we stay up so late? But that didn't happen. Paul goes downstairs. He lays on top of, of Eutychus in the, in the nature of Elijah and Elisha. And then he just comes back. He's out. Oh, he's not dead. His life's still in him. Okay, he's back. He's fine. Let's, let's go back and we'll get back to teaching and fellowship. That's just crazy. Now, good news, bad news. Bad news is I don't have that apostolic gift. If you fall out of a window and die during my preaching, I can call a hearse. I can't do anything else for you. So, so tread carefully. Don't sit near the window and do not fall asleep. But I do think there's an encouragement there that God does still wake sleeping people. Um... You should, you should find your, the book of Hosea. You guys know the prophet Hosea? There's a great passage in the book of Hosea in chapter 10, verse 12. You can flip over there while I set it up for you. But the good news is that while as regenerate souls, genuine Christians, we can't actually be separated from God, we can still go through periods of slumber, apathy, and indifference. And God does these things, and he's done it throughout history, and he talks about it in Hosea, and we've seen it in our times under the Great Awakening section here of your notes. It's called revival. Do you know what revival is? Revival is not large numbers of non-believers coming to faith. That's not what revival is. Revival is believers becoming passionate under the reality of what they've received. Spurgeon defines it, Charles Spurgeon, to rekindle into flame the vital spark which was nearly extinguished. I love that definition. To rekindle into flame the vital spark which was nearly extinguished. Hosea 10.12, it's an admonition to break up the fallow ground of your heart. Think about what that means. Fallow ground, it's like compacted soil. 
It just, you can't plant seed real well in this compacted soil. God commands his people to break up the fallow ground of their heart. Do you see the so what on the end of that 1012? Are you there, Diane? You may come and rain salvation upon you. Salvation, another word it can take in there is righteousness. It is God saying, break up the fallow ground so I can bless you and use you as a blessing to others. It is a wonderful thing that, that God offers us the ability to have the fallow ground in our heart broken up, the indifference and the apathy and, and the sleepiness that we sometimes walk in. Have you ever noticed that sometimes you could sit down and try to pray and you can pretty easily fall asleep? Has that ever happened to anybody besides me? It's like, dear God, I'm tired. Or you, you're reading something like, like Scripture and it's just like, whoo! Yeah. I've gone over my list of to-do 15 times in one chapter, but I can't tell you what I read in this book. Now, today at 1 o'clock, the Eagles play the Giants. It has nothing to do with San Francisco, so I'm safe. And I imagine you won't see many people on TV sitting in the stands going like this. Why does that not happen at a football game? Yeah? Or, or it's rare, except when I was growing up, my dad, he, it must have been the angle he sat at. He'd watch a movie in five minutes, he's out. Whatever movie it was, he was out. I think that's not a normal trait. But most people sit up and they watch a movie and they, they stay awake. Well, there's a danger we run into that secondary things can keep our attention and keep us awake and excited and alert. But, but foremost things we, we can slumber pretty easily on. Why? Because we still have sin that, that, that affects us. Well, God gives us this wonderful gift that when we find ourselves slumbering or, or sleeping or, or drifting off, he'll empower us to, to wake us from our sleep. To, to bring about a, a great awakening, per se. Sow seeds of righteousness and reap love is what you see in that section of, of Hosea 10:12. So I'm looking at this section, and I'm thinking, first and foremost, for myself. And I share it with you guys as, first and foremost, an, an encouragement. You know, I, was, I was talking to Laura yesterday. I said, you know, this sermon would be great for a whole nother setting with a whole nother group of people, I feel like. You know, I'd love to, uh, along the lines of what Patty keeps talking about, I'd love to go in and open air preach at Wegmans, you know, today, or, or walk into just a real watered-down gospel light church and just knock, knock their preacher off the podium and, and get up there and just throw this one out there and know that, I, that I'm leaving so they won't kill me afterwards. But, you know, to call the sleeping giant to wake up. But I feel like what God's saying to me is, John, you are part of this sleeping giant. There, there is a part of you that slumbers still. You, know, you, are not, you are not fully awake at all times as I desire for you to be. Father, what is it that you call me to do? Johnny says, love one another as I have loved you. Make sure that each and every person that you are a part of a local body with, that you are truly loving. Make sure that with your own wife and your kids, you're truly loving them. Make sure the believers you know in other areas, that you're truly loving them. Why? Well, because I command you to. Because it is for your good, and so that the world may know that you are my disciples. Well, but, 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 God, no, he says, this week he says to me, slow, slow down. Don't worry so much about the things you can't control. I've got them in control. Let's get back to the basics. What if we got back to the basics, and as we talked about a little bit last night, what if we actually trusted in the power of the Holy Spirit to convict the world through his word, and we began to be better equipped to lovingly and whimsically present the gospel to people. 
and actually see the power of the gospel at work in people's lives, starting in our own homes um, and moving on from there. I wonder how often with my kids I get concerned, more concerned about secondary things than primary things. How often am I, is my foremost concern in the day to, to say, uh, a la Paul in, in Corinthians 11.1, 1, follow my example. Follow my example as we get up on Sunday morning. Follow my example today as we gather together and sing. Follow my example as I go out and interact with the neighbors. Follow my example. And that through that, they may come to see the love of Christ. How often am I primarily concerned with re-evangelizing them, presenting them with the truth of the gospel and, and opening up the scriptures to them in, in, these, in these numerous uh, opportunities in life to, to show them the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? How often am I modeling for them a love for my wife as, as Christ loves his church? So that they can see these things and it's through those things, through a relationship with Christ, that they then desire to go out and live their lives. With my neighbors, instead of trying to get overly creative, what if I just tried to walk in greater obedience before them and truly love them and pray for them and actually stop living in this silly little Americanized doubt of I don't understand how prayer works, so it's really not that important. But I mean actually robustly and passionately prayed for these people. And God forbid actually did this thing called fasting. Because, see, if prayer doesn't work, why would you need to fast? That makes no sense. But just say, God, I don't get how it all works, but I'll trust you on it. You know, you can fast from food and you can fast from stuff, but what if we actually tried to fast about something? Well, here's my contention, and I'm starting to see it at work, because honestly, in each and every person's life in this church, almost bar none, there is such clear evidence of God at work in the maturing process in them. We don't all act very naturally, I've got to be honest. We act a little bit supernaturally, because you see... You see these inklings of, of loving one another in very unique, non-normal ways. You see a desire to go out and reveal the love of Christ to other people, which is not a normal thing to desire to do. You see a desire amongst people to mature in their faith, to not just stagnate in apathy, and that's not normal, and that should be a massive encouragement to each and every one of us. It's an evidence of salvation, which is the greatest gift you will ever have, and it's a massive encouragement as your pastor to know that that God is at work amongst us, despite me, uh, rather than because of me, I'm, I'm quite sure. But here's what I want to I challenge all of us to. As parents, if we want our children to truly know Christ, as a friend, a friend, relative, associate, or neighbor, if we want others to truly know Christ, as a church, if we truly want to be a light in this dark world, what if we were intentional with these basics? What if we're able to be encouraged in these basics? So when we come in on a Sunday, right, there's a part of us, I think, that would all love to, to be transported down the road to a period of time when we have this really wonderful church building and there are, you know, 532 youth-age girls, Mike and Kalia's age, so you, we can honestly, you know, as, as original people, you, you can just cherry-pick the ones you like and we can move the other ones aside. There, there's, you know, in our kids, I can't wait to see my friends at church and I love Jesus. Like, there's nothing wrong with that, per se. So we get there, and there are all these people, and these people are hearing the gospel, and it's really, really exciting, right? Well, there's nothing wrong with that. But during the early times when, when we go through the, the hard work of the pruning and the fruit bearing, we can rejoice on a Sunday when we gather together and not be so concerned, because right this very moment, we have brought glory to God, and he is pleased with us because we walk in obedience. And as we continue to, we get to see what he'll do through it. 
Do you see that? Now, it's a great message for lots of other people who are at Wegmans today. And I'm not saying you got to be here 52 out of 52. Heck, I can't even do that. I've, I've done 51 out of 52, and that dog will wear you out. Um, it's not a matter of have to. It's a matter of understanding something. It's a matter of being reminded of the fact that Jesus loved you selfishly and sacrificially. And you've got to just let that sink in day by day. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, right? You just chew on that. You were, you were a horrendous offense before a perfect and holy God. You walked in sin. You stank a pig poop. You were a dysfunctional, angry, not even a sheep. You were a goat to take the illustration. You wished God dead along the lines of the, the parable of the prodigal. Dad, I wish you were dead so I could have my money. Can I have it early? And then I'm going to go waste it on a lascivious lifestyle. Yet God allowed us to come back. And as we move from the place of knowing facts about God to actually knowing God, and I was thinking about this on the ride, and someone says to me, can you prove to me God exists? I would say, you know, I'd like to say, yeah, absolutely I can prove he exists. If they say, how? I say, because I know him. What do you mean to see he exists? He, he radically changed my life 180 degrees. He speaks to me. I know him. He guides my paths. Yeah, of course he's real. Would you like to meet him? As opposed to worrying about sharing just some intellectual facts. Now what I'm saying is we're called not to know about God, but to know God himself. That's crazy. From enemies to children who get one day to go and meet with Pam. You know? Think about that. I would love Pam to come back and just do one sermon. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be neat? You just take someone who went to, who went to heaven, who, who got a... Now, Paul was brought up to the third heaven, he tells us. He doesn't give us a lot of details. Um, wouldn't you love to have someone come back and just say, all right, if I could just do it again for a little bit, it would be a little crazier. See, all of a sudden, I, I can really love you all. I don't care what you do to me. I can love you. I, I, can, I can stay focused on foremost things because I've gotten a clean glimpse of them. Do, do you see what I'm saying there? Guys, here, here's what I see in Acts 20, and then I'll, I'll put this bad boy to rest. Let's understand that God calls us to gather together for his glory, our good, and so that the world around us can come to know of the love of Christ, not just because we get together, but because we love one another. Think about this week. How could we better, truly love one another, sacrificially and selflessly? Where do we have needs? Where can we meet needs? How can we encourage? How can we be encouraging? Across the board. And let's be praying that God would, would convict us of how we could love one another better and how we need to be loved better. Do you see that? And then let's try to do it. Let's, let's make sure we stay awake. One of the things we're called to is, is to, uh, to make sure we don't fall out of the window per se. That's part of the, the relationship building. I think the difference between the world's fellowship and a biblical fellowship is the depth of, of knowing of each other. It's, you ever notice, if you talk to the majority of the world, everything's just fine and dandy and going great, and then you get to inside your own head, and you're like, why is everyone else doing so much better? And I'm just kind of like, well, this is just ridiculous, you know? It's because you get to know people and their struggles and their concerns, and, and they become more transparent, and in, in that, we can help each other stay awake. And daily, folks, you got to pray. you got to pray that God would convict us of any fallow ground in our heart, that he would make us aware of any idols that we allow to live in the idol factory of our heart so that we can get rid of them. 
And they are numerous and they are many and they are different from person to person. But if we began to live that way, wouldn't it be really neat if we got to the point that our greatest concern was not how to get people to come to God's Grace Bible Church, but how to get them to get the heck out of here on Sunday so that we could go out and share the gospel with other people? May we get to a point, may we get to a point one day where we are just overwhelmed with the plentiful harvest that we see God use us in the process of, of people coming to faith, where we get to rejoice in seeing God meet our, doesn't he tell us that in scripture? I will meet your, your every need in Christ Jesus. As we get to rejoice, as we see that happen, as we walk in obedience, wouldn't that be neat? Well, I think this is part of the great if we live in. I firmly believe that we get to experience that if we're willing to walk in greater and greater obedience. So my commitment to you guys is, I'm going to continue to try to truly love you selfishly and sacrificially. You know, I, I tell you all the time, um, when we started the church, I remember with those first people we started with telling them, I'm really not, it's not a stepping stone job. I'm not going anywhere unless God makes it very clear. And maybe I take that to a fault, but that doesn't mean the church in Florida next to Disney World with a $300,000 salary calls and says, we'd like to offer you a job and a, a house under a 10-year contract that we can't break. You know, I'd be like, well, hey, that must be from God. It's got to be more robust than that. But what I'm trying to say is I want to commit selfishly and sacrificially, not conditionally. You know, I'm not saying so when, when 15 or 20 of you screw me over, I'm off the hook. But no. But I want to continue to make sure that I'm loving you as fellow members of this local body and that we're able to mutually encourage one another that way. I also want to do that so the world around us can see the love we have for one another because Christ first loved us so they could come to know this. And then I want to see, knowing that each and every day we're gathering together, we're pleasing God, what he might do through us. So be encouraged today. Be encouraged that as we gather together, we're bringing glory to God. Be encouraged that God loves you far more than you can ever fully comprehend. And be encouraged that there is a power that is in our midst, in us, and collectively in our midst, that will blow your mind. When the United States of America woke from its quote-unquote sleeping slumber between the Great War and World War II, it wasn't that all-powerful of a nation. You do know that? You guys understand that? Before a sovereign God... Do you know, it wasn't Hitler or Hirohito or, or any president of the United States that was manipulating the cogs of human history. You, you guys understand that? It was God himself firmly and fully in control of all things. The most powerful men and women who have, who have ever walked on the face of this earth were simply pawns in the hands of God, many of whom were enemies of God, who, who met judgment day. Well, it's the power of the one who sovereignly controls all things that dwells in us and promises to work through us. So when we go out and we share the gospel, it's not so much God saying, go and do this and see what happens. It's God saying, come along with me. I will go with you. You just simply speak for me. Watch what I do. Well, God, why would you invite us along on that ride? Because I want you to have joy beyond measure. I want you to see what I can do through someone like you. Well, Paul experienced that. And little by little as he experienced it, he understood the love of, of Christ that he had. He understood that this sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowing, Alpha and Omega, this God who was, loved him, would never leave him nor forsake him, would fulfill all of his needs in Christ Jesus, 
And he just couldn't help but walking in greater and greater obedience to Christ. What might happen if we as a local body and other local bodies around us began to gather together and do those types of things for the glory of God? What might people in Chester County start to think of the church, the gospel, the God who is? How might God work in the lives of those who don't know him? How might God work in the lives of those who do know him but have fallow ground that needs to be broken up? God doesn't say get a collective mass of 500,000 people together and we'll see what we can do. Read through the annals of church history, even from the, the 1900s back. Look at the times when, when great awakenings have come to the United States of America, to, to countries in Europe. Heck, there are some going on right now in, in uh, Middle Eastern nations. You know how God has begun these things almost every time? With a few faithful people walking in obedience, praying that God would work in them and through them, and then being floored. Now, do I have some sort of inside scoop that God's about to bring revival to our nation? Not in the least bit. I do have an inside scoop that God loves you, that God's never going to leave you nor forsake you, and that God calls us to abundant life, which we experience by walking in greater obedience to him. I'm going to close with prayer. We're going to take communion as a church family. And as we do, let's just spend some time marveling at the fact that, that God loves us, that, that, that God selfishly and sacrificially gave himself, gave his life so that we might have eternal life. That even though we screw up plenty of times, even as, as followers of Christ on this side, he's never going to leave us nor forsake us. He doesn't hold a grudge. God's not like, you stinking idiot, man, I wish I never saved you. God, those words never pass through God's lips. Think of that. We have a perfect heavenly father who will never leave us nor forsake us. And let's ask him to equip us, to empower us, to motivate us, to encourage us to walk in greater obedience for his glory, for our good, and so that many other people may come to truly know of the love that he has for them. Father God, I thank you for the fact that, that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us uh, through your word. I thank you for the fact that you are beyond our ability to, to fully comprehend. You are more we have to use human words of physical attributes to try to describe you, yet you are not a, a physical being that can be contained by words. So when we say you are, you are massive, massive isn't a word that fits with you. When we, we say that you are all-knowing, it, it still doesn't fit. When we say that you perfectly love, it doesn't fully grasp who you are, and we just marvel before you at the fact that you are uncontainable, that you are not fully knowable, that that your mind is not even remotely graspable from our human perspective, especially as fallen creatures. But we thank you, God, that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us. We thank you for your word, God, that, that you have taken the unknowable and made it knowable, that, that you, have, you have spoken from upon high to, to worms in the mud, that you have using, used human words to reveal to our very fallen to our very finite ears, an ability to comprehend who you are. And God, we just fall before you and we just thank you for that. And we also thank you, God, and praise you for the fact that you are not some vindictive, angry deity. You are far more loving and compassionate than we can grasp. You are holy, that is true, and we should walk in a, in a proper fear before you. Uh, you're not our homeboy. You're not a genie for us to manipulate. You are, you are one who sustains us moment by moment and allows us even to draw breath. 
but you love us in ways we can't even comprehend. You have a love for all people. You love those who aren't saved. No matter what they are doing, have done, or will do, you love them. We understand that. And that is why you make this offer of salvation available to all those who will turn to you. But as your children, Father, you have a unique and special love for us. And I pray we would understand that more fully. I pray that as we partake of the, the Lord's Supper, the, the Passover culmination, that we would reflect upon and rejoice over the body of Christ which was broken for us, the blood of Christ which was shed for us, that you became a man and lived a perfect life so you could take the penalty due us as fallen people. Yet you were fully God so you could forgive us, that you took the righteousness of Christ and put it upon us who believe and it's in that righteousness that you now see us, and that we no longer have to walk in shame before you and, and a, a, an unrighteous fear. God, we have this, this joy and this certainty of knowing that you will never leave us, that we are with you always, that we will come to know you better and better and one day be able to stand besides Pam in your direct presence and rejoice and cry out, holy, 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 and, and just be thankful that we are able to worship you and know you better day by day for all of eternity. We just praise you and thank you for that, God. God, I pray for all of us that you would convict us of any fallow ground in our hearts that you would make us aware of idols that we have in our lives, and that you would empower us to walk in greater obedience and love one another. And I also pray for, for our kids downstairs today. I pray for Kirsten's girls and, and my boys, God, that, that you would raise up kids to come alongside them in families that, that love you, that you would raise up children that, that truly love you to walk alongside them and be an encouragement and allow them to be mutually encouraging to one another. And I pray, Father, that, that it would be clearly from you that this would be done. I pray that you would bring them or bring, them, bring us across their path so we might, uh, we might encounter them, but that you would unite, us, unite our kids together with children who are, who are going to be positive, godly influences and with other parents of similar age who will be positive, godly influences upon their lives. Father, we pray this in the precious and holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen.